had some great questions uh, come in throughout the week. For those who don't know, I did a Q&A last week, and I told you I would do another one this week. And uh, everybody gave me a lot of good feedback on this is really interesting. We should do it again. And so I'm going to try to do this once or twice a year every year and do Q&A and um, solicit you guys for questions. And uh, I opened it up last week. I said, if you guys have any other questions, and I was just uh, I was like uh, uh, inundated with questions uh, over the week and um, up until like five minutes before service started. (laughs) So um, if you got your question in before like Wednesday or Thursday, uh, your question may may show up on this. If not, it's likely that it didn't. So if you ask me a question throughout the week, if you text me a question or something like that, and I'm not addressing it today, I'm very sorry. It's not a personal thing. It's not that I don't think your question is legitimate. It's just um, I didn't have time to answer it, okay? But maybe we can get to it at some point. But there's so many questions, and I think if you ever stop asking questions, you're doing something wrong. If you ever just become a a seat sitter and you're just like, okay, yeah, I'm just going to accept blindly everything anyone teaches me, then you're doing something wrong. You should always be inquiring, right? And I have the verse up there, Proverbs 25, 2. It says that it is the glory of God to conceal things. So think about that a second. God finds glory in concealing things. But it's the glory of kings to search them out. So that's kind of a beautiful picture of our relationship with God is that he hides jewels and treasures. And it's our job to try to hunt them out and and dig them up and find them. And God receives glory for that. So I think questions are very important. And if you ever are in an environment where questions are not celebrated and welcomed, and they're met with hostility, that's not a good environment. That's not a healthy, godly environment whatsoever, okay? So question number one, and this is how this is gonna work, is that I'm gonna show you the question that someone was at, someone asked me, and these are, you guys asked me these questions, and I'm gonna answer the question to the, mes- the best of my ability, and then we're gonna do a Q&A about that Q&A, okay? So then I'm gonna open it up to anything, that, any points that you guys want to make. We'll spend a couple minutes doing that, and then we'll move on to the next question, okay? The first question that uh, I want to address today is this right here. And I've heard this time and time come up over the past years. Um, Is the name Jesus derived from the phrase Hail Zeus? How many of you have ever heard that phrase before? Most of you. Okay. Um, I'm going to prove to you today that that is false. That is absolutely not the case. And I've heard people, what they'll do is take this falsehood, this, this false truth claim, and they'll belittle people who say Jesus as if they're more righteous than that person or something, okay? And then some people, they just don't know better, so they say that, and they they have good hearts. They just say that, but it's still false, okay? But I'm gonna show you, because number one, the word hail is from the Germanic languages. It's German, okay? It's not Greek, and Zeus is a Greek name. So already, right away, you can tell those, those are two different two different words from two different languages. They don't match up. So why would people in Greek and in, in ancient Greece be saying hail, a German word, Zeus, right? It's anachronistic to say that. But where does it come from? Jesus, where does it come from? So you probably know in this room that Jesus' name was Yeshua, which is an Aramaic name derived from a Hebrew name, Yehoshua. Okay, Yehoshua means God's salvation. Yeshua is like, Mike is to Michael. Yeshua is a shortened Aramaic version of Yehoshua. You know, the character in the Bible, Yehoshua. So Yeshua is what he heard all his life. That's what his mother named him. And it means salvation. It is a word that's found all throughout the Hebrew Bible, Yeshua. It's different forms of that, like Yeshua T, my salvation. 
uh, Yeshua Teka, your salvation. It goes on, and there's a list of, of words, and it's used dozens of times in the Hebrew Bible. But when you take a name into the Greek language, like Yeshua into the Greek language, and you want to tell Greek speakers about Yeshua, but in their Greek language, they hear Yeshua, they hear more like a feminine name. Because in the Greek language, all male names, proper male names, have to end in an OS or a US. Like Zeus, like Titus, like Paulos, the list goes on. OS or US is a good Greek name, a good male Greek name, I should say. So we could change his name then if we're speaking to a Greek speaker to Yeshua's, right? And that would denote, okay, maybe he's a male. But then we have another problem because there is no Y sound, Y, Y sound like that in the Greek language. There's no letter Y. The closest thing that we can get to that is the Iota, which is like a E, E, E. It's the closest thing we get to a Y sound. So let's make his name Ishuas. Ishuas. But then we have another problem because when you take it into the Greek, there's no SH sound in the Greek language. There is no Greek letter that makes an SH. The closest we can get is maybe a sigma. And so if that's the case, then we have to soften it a little bit and make it Isus. Isus. You catch me? Then. As Isus makes it through uh, more Germanic-influenced languages, like our own, English is very influenced by the German language, it, the Isus gets hardened to a Jesus. A Jesus, okay? And uh, then we change the emphasis to a different syllable. <laughs> and we make it Jesus. So do you see the evolution there? It's because the name Yeshua has traveled through three to four different languages and it's come out as Jesus, okay? If you go to um, Arabic speaking countries, it's very close to the original. They say Yesu or Yeshua. Uh, even in Korean, it's very, uh, where's Kyung Hee? She's not here. Oh, okay. In Korean, it's very close to the, the original. Even in Spanish, it's Jesus. But um, yeah, so that's, that's the evolution of the name. It has nothing to do with Zeus. It has nothing to do with Hail Zeus. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's the evolution of his name right there. And you can see it drawn up there. So it's very important that as we're sharing these kinds of things and sharing our faith with people, that we do our best to be truthful and do our best to be factual and I just want to clear that up. If there's ever any misunderstanding and you have said that, that's okay. You probably just didn't know better. But just be people of truth and make sure that you say things that you know for a fact are verifiable. All right. Let's do a question about the question. So take a couple minutes. Does anybody have a Nicholas? I see your name. Um, because there is no Y sound in the Greek language. There's no Y. Correct, yeah. And the closest thing we can get to it is the iota. And it's iesus. So it's very close to Jesus. It's iesus. And there's no, there's no letter in the Greek language that makes a sh sound, sh, like that. But in Hebrew, there is. It's the sheen. So that's what happens when you take uh, names and you put them through different languages. 
is they change over time. So we, in our, you know, in our um, modern vernacular, we can go back to the original. We have letters that can make that sound. So, you know, here in our congregation, we say, well, why don't we just say what he would have been called? Is it wrong to say Jesus? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Like we just sang victory and Jesus, right? That's fine. That's fine. Um, but most of us in this room just choose to call him Yeshua, which is a Hebrew word that means salvation. Okay. All right. Any other questions about the question before I move on to number two? Okay. Good. We're doing good. We're doing in good. German, okay. In German, they call him Jesus. Jesus in German. Okay. The next one we're going to go to is a little bit beefier of a topic, and it's and it often goes like um, like this. Um, did Jesus, Yeshua, did he observe the oral Torah? Did he observe what we call the Talmud? And um, first of all, it's anachronistic to even ask this question. Anachronistic means it doesn't line up time-wise. And many of you just said, what is the oral Torah? Well, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The oral Torah sometimes called in Hebrew the uh, Torah Shabal Peh, the Torah that is from the mouth. It's the oral Torah. It is the interpretation of the written Torah. Okay, it's the oral interpretation. Now, much of that oral interpretation was done by a group of Torah scholars that we would call the Sofrim, the scribes, as it translates into Hebrew, people who write the Torah, and the rabbis. The rabbis, which mean the great ones, the teachers, okay? And they would take the written Torah and they would interpret its, its uh, commandments because there are commandments in the Torah that are not cut and dry, that are not exactly clear for us to understand. And we need to interpret those commandments. For instance, don't work on Shabbat. What is work? There's an entire, entire um, body of literature found in the oral Torah that the rabbis deliberate and, and argue and debate what is work, what is not work, okay? And um, it would be like, and I often use this analogy, if it, it would be like if I took the top 10 most well-known famous pastors and rabbis in the world and I went to their Twitter accounts and I wanted to know what they thought and what they believed about the second coming of Messiah, so I went to their Twitter account. So I mean, think of people like, um, like John MacArthur, um, Billy Graham, Franklin Graham, like um, all these you know, very popular Christian pastors who have Twitter accounts, okay? I doubt Billy Graham did, but if I went and I read through all their Twitter feed and I found every passage that they put out a tweet on where it talked about the second coming of, of Messiah, and I copied and I pasted that into a Word document and I categorized it by second coming of Messiah. And then I put, Franklin Graham says this, John MacArthur says this, um, Francis Chan says this, Franklin Graham says this. And it was like, and I just had this compendium of all these different pastors and what they say. And Ravi Zacharias says that, right? And all these guys, and we would all go to it. Now, would all those guys agree on how the second coming of Messiah is going to play out? Yeah. No, absolutely not. <clears throat> But I would be able to see at a glance what they thought about that topic. Now, that in, that's the best way I could explain to you what the oral Torah is. The oral Torah eventually and unfortunately was written down. 
And it should not have been written down because what happens when we take things and we write them down and we put them between two covers, we say that that's either all true or all not true. If there's any falsehood in this book, then all of it's not true. And that's a very unfortunate thing that has happened with the oral Torah because there are some things that are very true in the oral Torah. There are some things that are very good and wholesome and beneficial. Then there are some things that are really messed up in the oral Torah, in the Talmud. Like for instance, one of the tractates of the Talmud says that Yeshua, the founder of Christianity, is forever boiling in, in human feces. That's in the Talmud. But that was put between two covers and called the Talmud. And so we come across passages like that and we say, throw it all out. But originally it wasn't supposed to be written down. Originally it was actually forbidden to be written down. When it finally was written down, it was written down um, between the years 70 and 200 AD. And it was called this body of literature. So we took our Twitter, we took our Twitter um, uh, things. We, we took six major topics, okay? Like the return of Messiah, speaking in tongues, the list goes on. We took six big topics and we put them into a Word document. We printed it out. We would call that the Mishnah. The Mishnah means the sayings or the repetitions, okay? It's about the size of a Bible. When we buy a Mishnah today, which you can buy on Amazon right there behind, you can see, you can buy it on Amazon. When we buy the Mishnah, it's about the size of the Bible that maybe you have a Bible. Not very long, so to speak. But it's got dozens and dozens of rabbis' repetitions and sayings about six major uh, themes of Jewish life and how to keep the Torah, like agriculture, Shabbat, um, the list goes on. So over time, of course, and getting more into the Middle Ages, more rabbis are commenting on the commentary. More rabbis are commenting on the Mishnah. So what do we do? Let's write all those down now. And that grows even bigger in size to something like this. So let's back up and let's retrace our steps. We have the Torah, which is five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then the, over time, the rabbis comment on the Torah and try to interpret that for people who are trying to follow the Torah and its commandments. That becomes the repetitions, or in Hebrew, we say the Mishnah, it's about the size of your Bible. And then fast forward several hundred more years, let's write down even more of the rabbi's commentary and let's call that the Talmud. The Talmud, it translates to the teaching or the instruction, okay? Really, it's called the Gemara. Um, gemara means that to finish something. It comes from the root Gemar, which means to end or complete something. So this is the Gemara. Now you put the Gemara and you put the Mishnah together, you have this body of literature that we so frequently just call the Talmud. The Talmud means the teaching, okay? So you have the Torah and then you have the Talmud. Under the Talmud, the Mishnah, Gemara. Mishnah is like the size of your Bible, one book long, six tractates. Then you have the Gemara. There's actually two different versions of the Gemara. You have the Jerusalem Gemara, you have the Babylonian Gemara. Each are a little bit different, okay? If you go to a yeshiva today and you want to learn to become an orthodox rabbi in a yeshiva, you spend a majority of your time studying these documents right here, okay? Sometimes to the exclusion of the written Torah, unfortunately. 
So there, you have an overview of the Talmud. You have an overview of the Gemara and the Mishnah, okay? So let's go back to our initial question. Did Yeshua observe all this stuff? Did Yeshua interact with this stuff? The answer is no. He didn't interact with it because it didn't exist in this form during his time. There was no written documents called the Mishnah or the Gemara. Now, were there things floating around in the Jewish um, atmosphere at the time and repetitions and sayings from great rabbis like Hallel and Shammai during the times of Yeshua? Absolutely, yes, there were. Was there debate and argument about how to interpret certain commandments? For instance, can we get a divorce? If so, when can we divorce our wife or, or whatever? Absolutely, yes, there were. So naturally, and was there debates going on during the times of Yeshua, oral debates going on about what is work and what is not work on Shabbat? What is permissible to do and what is not permissible to do? Like, is it permissible to heal on Shabbat? Yes, those conversations, those dialogues were going on at that time. So naturally, when Yeshua steps in the scene, he has to interact with those debates and that dialogue that's going on in the, uh, in the atmosphere, the Jewish world at the time. So... I want you to do one thing though. Don't confuse interpretation with tradition. Much of that stuff that you see in those books is attempts at interpreting the written commandments of God. That's good. We should make attempts to do that, right? Many people say, oh, that's all tradition. No, it's not necessarily the case. It's all interpretation. It's all case law and case law is good. Now, I don't agree with all case law, even in the United States of America, I don't agree with all case law but we should make an attempt to interpret the Torah. So did Jesus, did Yeshua interact with this? Yes, he did. What would be an example of his approval of some of the aspects of the oral Torah? What would you say would be a good example where he's showing his approval for certain aspects? Anybody? Let me help you out. What about Matthew 23? Yeshua does a very rabbinic thing. He has a Passover banquet meal with his disciples more than likely before the actual date of Passover. That was a rabbinic thing. He has a Seder meal, so to speak, where they retell the story of Passover. And then he takes elements of the Passover and he makes them about himself. It's a very traditional thing to do at the time. Okay? So approval might be like actually doing some of the things. What about this? When he is in the, I'm sorry, that was Matthew 26, by the way. When he's in Matthew 26 and he's celebrating the Passover and he's about to take the bread, what does he do with the bread? Before he breaks it, what does he do? He says a bracha. He probably says something like, Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu olam, hamutzi lachamina aretz. He breaks the bread. Now, is that a, is that a, is that a uh, tradition to do that? Does the Torah command us to pray and bless our bread? No. It actually says that we should do the birkat hamatzon, the blessing after the meal. Yeshua is partaking and doing a Pharisaical tradition when he says a blessing over the bread and then breaks it. Interesting, right? What about this one? When it says in Acts 1.12 that they went the Sabbath day's journey from the Mount of Olives to the city of Jerusalem. What is a Sabbath day's journey? Unless you knew the, the oral Torah, you wouldn't know what a Sabbath day's journey is. It's not explicit in the Torah how far you, cannot, you can or cannot go. So what they're doing there, and Luke is making sure, we're aware of the fact that these guys are observant Jews. They're not breaking this 
restriction of traveling too far on the Sabbath, that they're staying within those parameters. And uh, even to this day in Orthodox communities, you don't travel beyond what's called the Karuv. If you ever go to like Crown Heights, New York, or some of you are going to go to Jerusalem next, week, uh, next month, uh, you go to the neighborhoods of like Mea Sharim, and the exterior perimeter of Mea Sharim has telephone poles where there's you know, power lines on the top. But at the, the telephone poles, there are often markings on them that say Karuv in Hebrew, Karuv, which means uh, like the boundary. So on Shabbat, a family, a good Orthodox family, knows to not cross the Karuv on Shabbat. But that is not explicit in the Torah. It's an, interpre- it's an attempt to make an interpretation of the Torah. And the Torah commandment says, stay in your place on Shabbat. That's in the Torah. Well, what does in your place mean? We, w- we all in this room would have to come up with an interpretation of that. And you can't say, well, that's just tradition or that's oral Torah. We're not doing that. No, you're trying to make an interpretation. That's a good thing. And Jews for thousands of years have been trying to do the same thing. And that, it just so happens to be preserved for us in Acts chapter one, verse 12, where it says they walked the Sabbath day's journey back to the city. What about this? The very concept of Yeshua raising up disciples. You know, that comes straight up out of the Mishnah. It comes from Pirkei Avot. And uh, I think I have the quote here. No, I don't. I left it off. Pirkei Avot says, be swift. Um, I'm sorry. It says, be, be patient in making judgments. And then it says, raise up for you many disciples. Where in the Torah does it say to make disciples? It doesn't really say that, does it? Is that a bad thing to raise up disciples? No, absolutely not. Yeshua says, Matthew 28, go into the nations and of the Gentiles, make disciples. Well, guess what? That's a very rabbinic thing to do. That's something that is found in the oral Torah, but it's a good thing. He tells us to do it, but it's not a explicit Torah thing. It's a, well, rabbinic thing. Here it is. I have it here in my notes. Moses received the Torah at Sinai. This is from Pirkei Avot. And he transmitted it to Yehoshua, Yehoshua to the elders and the elders to the prophets and the prophets to the men of the great assembly. They said three things. Be patient in the administration of justice and raise up many disciples. And listen to this last one and make a fence around the Torah. It's interesting because when I read that, make a fence around the Torah, that reminds me of something. What does it mean by make a fence around the Torah, first of all? So how many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? Raise your hand. Okay. In the main viewing area of the Grand Canyon, what do you come across before you can step over the edge? A fence. A fence. Now, we don't look at the fence and say, oh, that's a curse, right? Or, oh, no, we can't. That, I'm ignoring that. I'm going to climb over the fence, right? You'll have someone on you yelling at you, right? You're going to die. You're, gonna, you're really close. You don't ignore that. It's a good thing. We would agree that the fence is good, right? Well, the same is true. The rabbis over time have taken a commandment. For instance, let's say, do not murder. Some of you know where I'm going with this. Do not murder. Let's make a fence around that commandment, do not murder, so that we don't even come close to murdering. What do you think that fence could be? Matthew chapter five. You've heard it said, do not commit murder. But I tell you, I speak oral Torah to you. 
anyone who just harbors anger against his brother is guilty of murder. You see that? Because harboring anger against your brother might lead to murder. So let's build a fence around that. Don't even harbor anger against your brother. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, any man who looks at a woman with the purpose of lusting after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what does that tell us? Oh, let's not even touch the fence. Let's not even lust after another woman. Because lusting after another woman is like the same as committing adultery. That's what leads to adultery. Okay? The list goes on. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. You should read it. You should memorize it. Memorize the words of our rabbi. So you see, Yeshua is doing a very rabbinic thing there, a very oral Torah thing to do. He's adding offenses around the Torah. Now, don't confuse his acknowledgement and acceptance of certain oral Torah things as his wholesale seal of approval over all of that, because that did not exist at that time. Right? Why would he do that? It says that he's boiling an excrement. Why would he put his seal of approval over that? But it's okay if we acknowledge, yes, Yeshua did some very rabbinic things. Yes, he did say in Matthew 23, as the Pharisees sit on the seat of Moses, do as they say, but don't do as they do. Right? He even said, tie the mint and the cumin. That's not in the Torah. So you see... Many times, well-intentioned teachers say, oral Torah, all of it bad. Yeah, there are some really bad things in the oral Torah. The worst thing that ever happened to the oral Torah is it got put between two covers and then put on a shelf, put in a bookstore. The worst thing that ever happened. We are supposed to go through the oral Torah when we have questions of interpretation about how to, how to walk out the commandments of God. We could, we're supposed to be able to go through and look at it and say, I like that, I don't like that. I like this, I don't like this. That's how it's supposed to work, just like our Twitter analogy. I like what Billy Graham says there, I don't like what his son says there. You got me? But we said, instead we look at that and we say, oh, all of that bad. Don't even look at that, don't even quote that. So that's my answer to that question. We gotta be very careful with the Talmud we got to be very, very careful with reading and spending a lot of time reading the words of great rabbis because they will potentially lead us from the greatest rabbi. And I've seen that happen. So for me, Gabe Rutledge, I don't study this. I've read the Mishnah. I like the Mishnah. It's got some beautiful, wise passages in it. But I don't even study the Mishnah per se. I have a hard enough time taking the passages of the written Bible and applying them to my life in a good way. I struggle with that on a day-to-day -day basis. And I would stand to reason that you probably do as well. So if you want to get on Amazon and buy this, great, have it on your library, study it. Just be careful, don't get lost in the weeds. Just remember that not all of it in there is good and true and worthy of your application in your life. But if you wanna learn more about historic Judaism, his, the Judaism of Yeshua's time, absolutely, the Mishnah is a wonderful place to start, I believe. So let's go to Q&A about that question. Let's take a couple minutes. Anybody have any questions about my, my answer? Yeah. What do you think when the Pharisees say, uh, your disciples, why don't your disciples wash their hands? 
is that, do you think that's, um, that the disciples weren't washing their hands, but Jesus was, or do you think that that statement implies that because they would model themselves after Jesus, that he also wasn't? Yeah, she asked for those who couldn't hear, and this is, she's quoting from Mark seven nineteen, or Mark 7, I should say. Um, Yeshua and some others are, and the disciples are, are about to sit down and eat a meal, and the Pharisees come to him and say, why don't, and he, they use the phrase, why don't some of your disciples wash your hands? Which would imply a couple things. Yeshua likely washed his hands with the, under the Pharisaical tradition, what's called natilat hayadeim, the washing of the hands, which is, comes with a special prescribed blessing. But he says, some of your disciples, the Pharisees say, some of your disciples don't wash your hands according to the customs of our people. Well, that's not in the Torah. The Torah doesn't say wash your hands before you eat. Is that a bad tradition? No, I, I think everyone in this room, you should wash your hands before we eat lunch, okay? <laughs> At some point in the day, you should wash your hands, okay? But you have to use the restroom, wash your hands. It's not a bad tradition, it's a very good one. But to make it one on par with the very words of God is sinful to do. And some of his disciples either weren't raised in the Pharisaical school of Judaism, so didn't know to do that, that was not their custom, or they were departing from that custom. But regardless, Yeshua gets onto their case and says, you guys do a good job of making void the word of God for the sake of your traditions. And then he gets onto them about that and says, you should not put on the same level your traditions as the word of God and then forsake the word of God. And he calls them out on that. So we can be guilty of that as well. When we have traditions like um, Gabrielle made shirts and we all bought shirts, we might do that every year now, that's a tradition. But if anyone 20 years from now stands up and says, guys, a couple of you did not get your shirts this year. Shame on you. Get your shirts. Get right with God. No, that's a tradition. We should recognize that as a tradition, right? And the moment that we put that tradition on par with the word of God, we're in trouble. We're sinful, right? So I don't know if that answers your question, Stacey, but um, that's in Mark chapter 7, by the way. Any other questions, though? Yeah, Jackie. What about the oral Torah? About the oral Torah? Do I agree with that? I, I don't agree with that assertion. I mean, that's yeah, it's the trans, it's the line of authority of transmission. I don't agree with that assertion. I think a written Torah was given. And then over time, people commented on that and interpreted that. And that became a body of, of floating sayings and interpretations that were eventually written down. But I don't know the oral Torah was not given simultaneously with the written Torah. So good question though, Suzanne. So if you... Uh, ever had the opportunity to be around somebody who is an observant Jew, as in like ultra-Orthodox or Orthodox, a lot of those people believe that the oral Torah is on the same par as the Lord yes. God. Yeah. And they will argue that. Well, they'll argue that, actually. They're very, very serious about that. And yeah. the point I wanted to make is, which had come to me before you even brought it up, was when Yeshua would say these things like, you have heard it said, well, where did we hear what? Mm -hmm. It was the oral Torah because it had been handed down, but like you said, it wasn't in a book at that point. It was just handed down generation after generation after generation. Yeah. And he didn't operate in a void. He operated out of Judaism. Yeah, yeah. He would have known these things. He would have known these things. Yeah. 
All right, any other questions or comments? We're gonna, yeah. Is it safe to say that most of the traditions most of traditions within Judaism, do they come from Talmud? Uh, we have to define tradition um, and, and what that is. So, for instance, uh, wearing a kippah on your head, that is, that is acknowledged to be within Judaism a tradition. That doesn't really come from the Talmud per se, because there isn't an attempt to interpret a commandment from the Torah and then outspat, oh, wear a kippah. That was a tradition that over time developed and became fossilized within Judaism. So um, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I'm sorry. I haven't just studied it at that level of depth where I can say that for sure. But yeah, Xavier. Uh, when Yeshua tells his disciples to observe the teachings from the seed of Moses, yeah. um, what, what is your take on that? Like what is the... What, what's he saying? Is he saying... Obey, obey them when they read the Torah to you? Is he saying obey their interpretations? What do you think? Yeah. Um, we got to remember that as they're reading the Torah in the Hebrew language, um, the Hebrew language is potentially dying out as a lingua franca of that day and that age. So, um, like, if it would, be, it would be like if I stood up here and read from a Torah scroll in Hebrew, and then I said, okay, let's close in prayer. How many of you would get something from that, right? Not many. So I believe that the seat of Moses was a place reserved for people of authority and um, notoriety who were trained to teach and interpret the Torah so that they would then read from the Torah and then sit, which is always a position of teaching and instruction in the in Bible, and then they would give interpretation and expound upon it. Um, that is the, that is the um, mainstream scholastic view of the seat of Moses, that that's how the synagogue service would have operated. And I've been, you know, to the synagogue in Capernaum, for instance, there would be a place like a bima where the Torah would be read from, and then there would be a seat and they would expound from what they just read, or maybe even just translate it into their language. So if interpretation was given though, this is where the super rabbinic people in this movement say we're obligated to obey the interpretation. Yeah. Because of that verse. Yeah, yeah. That I would just not see that as a blank check for everything. Because, I mean, uh, a lot of those things may have been situational. Um, He's asking basically like, so if Yeshua said in Matthew 23, we need to observe what they say from the seat of Moses, then don't we need to observe all of that? Well, no, I I don't see that as a blank check for everything that any rabbi has ever said that we should observe. Number one, that doesn't hold up to reason because the things in the Talmud contradict each other. Rabbis in the Talmud itself are contradictory. Um, they have different opinions. So therefore, we need to pick which one we want to go with if we want to try to observe all of that. So no, I don't see it as that. I just see it as there are people who know the Torah. There are people who can read the language of the Torah. And as they sit on the seat of Moses, listen to the translation of it and listen to them expound upon it. And then he says, don't do as they do because they, you know, they're basically, he goes on this long tirade about how they're hypocrites. Um, and they tie heavy burdens upon men's shoulders when they themselves don't lift a finger. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but yeah. Did Yeshua ever sit in the seat of Moses? We don't have any record of that, no. He never did that we know sit in the seat of Moses. Yeah. So. No, we knew it was read uh, Isaiah 61. I think he stood the whole time. Uh, potentially. So I've got two more questions, and I've got about 10 more minutes. So I'm going to take your time, and I think we can get through them all. Um, the two questions I've got is and these often come up, especially people that visit and they're new to our congregation, is they're very troubled sometimes by the fact that we face east when we pray. 
And uh, because sometimes people read their Bibles and they come across a passage where it says that people are praying towards the sun and the sun for half the day is in the east. Um, and they say, well, why are we facing east? Is that like pagan syncretism that we're, that we're doing? We're not really praying east. Did you know that? We're praying towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem just so happens to be in the direction of east. But this is a very biblical thing to do. Turn, with your, turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 6, verse 20. 2 Chronicles 6, 20. 2 Chronicles 6, 20. And uh, Solomon is dedicating the temple that he just finished building. 2 Chronicles 6, 20. And Solomon uh, utters this very beautiful prayer in 2 Chronicles 6. And we're not going to read all of it, but um, he says, May your eyes, he's talking to the creator here, may your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name. May you hear the prayers of your servant, uh, the prayer your servant prays toward this place, and then hear the supplications of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. You see what's going on there? So if we were in Moscow, Russia, which direction would we pray towards? South. False, the temple. Oh, <laughs> no, which would so happen to be south. Go with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings 8. Let me show you another example. 1 Kings 8. And I believe we're going to pick up in verse 29. 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings is basically a parallel narrative of what's going on back in Chronicles. 1 Kings 8. Um, uh, 1 Kings 8, starting in verse 28. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May our eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you have said, my name shall dwell there so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. You see what's going on there? So even to this day, when Orthodox or observant Jews pray, they always, in some, sometimes they even get out a compass, might be um, attached to their tallit bag, get out a compass and figure out which way is Jerusalem. I want to pray toward that place. And the question is, if you're in Israel, where do you pray towards? You pray towards Jerusalem. If you're in Jerusalem, where do you pray towards? You pray towards the Temple Mount. If you're on top of the Temple Mount, where do you pray towards? You pray towards the Holy of Holies. If you're in the Holy of Holies, where do you pray towards? The Ark of the Covenant, God's throne on earth. So that's, that's kind of how, that's from the oral Torah, by the way. But it's also biblical that we pray towards his house. Now, is his house there? No, it's not there. But do we long to see his house and to dwell in his courts? Yes. Just like Yeshua was consumed with a zeal for his father's house, we should be as well. So we pray towards the house. It just so happens that it's that way. 
Now, when we were rearranging this gym and um, remodeling in here, we actually pitched the idea of maybe putting everything and orienting it that way, but it just didn't work out with the way you'd have to walk in and it just didn't, it didn't work very well. So we decided to do it this way. And then during um, one of the most important prayers, the Shema, we would turn and face towards the house, towards God's house. Um, but that's how that developed. So it's not bad to pray towards Jerusalem. Is it bad to worship the sun? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> but it just so happens we face east when we pray. Now, any ancient synagogue, the ruins of ancient synagogues, and even the synagogue here in Dothan, Temple Emmanuel, faces east. So when the congregation is standing and praying, they're facing towards the city of Jerusalem. Now, in uh, ancient Rome, for instance, that might be more like south and east, but they're all positioned towards the city of Jerusalem. Okay? I hope that helps give you some clarity on that and puts your mind at ease if you were, tr- if you were troubled by the fact that when we face east when we pray. Last question, right on time. And this is, um, we're going to skip this one. I might save it for next time about pronouncing of, pronouncing of God's name. I think this one's a little bit more pertinent. Oh, there's a guy with stuffed animals. This one right here. This is a question that comes up every year. People ask, does Halloween have a place in the life of believers and followers of Yeshua? And I could say emphatically, without a shadow of a doubt, no, it should not have a place in your home whatsoever. No matter how bad your kids crave that high fructose corn syrup and that candy corn and dressing up and getting all the costumes and all that stuff. Here's why. Because the Bible tells us not to fellowship with darkness. The history of Halloween, if I can give you a very quick five to ten minute crash course, is this. It, it developed from a Celtic... Um, holy day called Samhain or Samhain which means the summer's end it is the time of year when we're transitioning into a different season the harvest has been brought in and things are going to start kind of getting cold when things get cold people die there's very little sustenance plants don't live animals go into hibernation and we wonder if we're going to survive that's on the forefront of every ancient people's minds. Are we going to last through this winter? So naturally, in your pagan, ancient pagan mind, you wonder, what can we do to get through this winter? What can we do to make it through? So some traditions developed, and this is particularly from the Celtic peoples, is they would, um, they would attempt to appease the gods. Not only the gods, but the disembodied spirits of their loved ones. Now, it was thought that on Samhain, summer's end, the veil between the realm of the living and the realm of the dead becomes very thin. And those who have crossed over into the land of the dead can now cross back into the land of the living. And they can visit their loved ones. The spirits can. That's not kosher, right? No. So what happens, though, if there's a mean spirit? What do you do? You want to ward that spirit off from your home. So you might take an object and put it outside of your home, maybe an object that has kind of like an ugly face on it. And you might try to ward off those ugly spirits. You might illuminate the inside of that object (laughs) and try to ward off that mean spirit, right? And then naturally kids would dress up in in a manner in which they thought resembled that disembodied loved one and they would go door to door in their village and beg for food and say, give us food or we will like uh, haunt you, right? 
And uh, so that became a tradition as well within, within the, the Samhain. But um, this ultimately has this unholy and satanic fascination with death. Anytime you see someone that has a fascination with death and what is going on in that realm or trying to bring that realm into this one or whatever, um, and they, they make light of that, be very careful. Any movies, music, um, things in pop culture, be very careful of that because our God is, is all about life and giving life abundantly. The Bible is so, uh, it's so hard to find explicit information about what happens to us when we die. That's how unconsumed God is with what happens after you die and how focused he is on how he wants you to live your life. But of course, as Catholicism spreads across the world, people begin to convert, convert to Catholicism. The Catholic Church says we have to do something with this Samhain. Let's change it to, um, I don't know, All Hallows' Eve, which um, is basically a holiday the Roman Catholic Church instituted that remembers past saints and uh, deceased saints and those who are hallow, those who are holy, okay? And so they try to reupholster Samhain and they make it Hallows' Eve, which over time became called Halloween. And uh, it, it begins to take that shape within Roman Catholicism. Um, you know, for instance, All Hallows' Eve was transported via Spanish conquistadors into Latin America and to Mexico, for instance, in the Yucatan Peninsula. And who lived in the Yucatan Peninsula in southern Mexico? The Aztecs did. And the Mayans did, right? And they had some weird things about the same time of year when the seasons began to change. And as Catholicism spread, same thing happened, syncretism. And there became this holiday that was already existing in Aztec culture and religion called the Dia de Muertas. The Day of the Dead. Muertos? The Day of the Dead. And uh, in Aztec culture, what you would do is um, you, you would actually take the skull of your deceased loved one and you would, uh, you would display it in your home. And then you would make offerings to those skulls in your home. Yeah. And then over time, that changed. The Roman Catholic Church said, no, guys, cut it out, cut it out, cut it out. Let's make the skulls instead of out of sugar. <laughs> like, that's any better. <laughs> like, they will represent your family and your, your whatever, but let's make them out of sugar. And then you can eat them at the end. <laughs> it's even better. But it's funny. They weren't, like, stopping with the skulls. They were, like, just make them out of sugar. So that's where we get this tradition. That's why when you see this Day of the Dead in Mexico... And it's a very big holiday in Mexico. And even, even in the United States, it's, it's spreading in popularity. You see this fascination with death and skeletons and skulls. But what you would do on this day is you would make in your home an ofrendas. Am I saying that right? Ofrenda. 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 Which is an, it's an altar in your home. It's an offering. It's an offering, yeah. You would build an altar in a shrine in your home. And it would... It, there you would set, you know, in ancient times you would set the skulls of your loved ones there and you would begin to make offerings to them leading up to October 31st and November 1st, November 2nd, around the time of the changing of the seasons. And you would say, okay, the veil is thinning. Let's make offerings to them so that when they come and visit us, they bring us good news or they, they treat us well. Um, so that's kind of how that developed. Um, 
and then you would do flowers and stuff. You would maybe visit their graves and all that kind of stuff. But um, <laughs> is this all about saints? When you walk into Lowe's and Walmart in any box store today, right now, go there right now. What do you see as soon as you see like a headless zombie, a robotic zombie walking towards you, right? And like, you're like, wait, what? And witches and all kinds of stuff. See, the thin veneer that the Roman Catholic Church put over this holiday is eroding away. And guys, I, I, driving out of my neighborhood this morning, I was greeted by a, a gallows in someone's front yard. And below that was a fake cemetery. And then just a couple of doors down from that was the half fake, fortunately, half decomposed body of someone hanging from a cage. And I'm like, kids, cover your eyes, right? It's, it always starts with like, you know, it's for the kids, it's this, you know, can't, we can't, it will damage their psyche if we don't let them play, you know, this and go trick-or-treating. It's going to hurt them somehow. They're, no, what will damage their psyche even more than that is if they have parents who don't have a, 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 a spine, a backbone. That will damage their psyche more than anything else. You want to teach your kids character in principle? Have a spine, have a backbone, be courageous in the face of darkness. You wanna teach them those kinds of things? Teach them what holiness looks like. Say, guys, that's darkness. And let me take you to a verse. Oh, there, there they are. Deuteronomy 18.10. Here's what the God of the Bible says. That a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who in, inquires of the dead, whoever does these things, that's an abomination. Don't do that, right? That's what the God of Abraham, what about 2 Corinthians 6, 14? Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. For what does righteousness and witness, what do they have in common? And what fellowship can light have with darkness? If you are children of light, you can't be involved in dark stuff. Otherwise, that light will fade and be diminished. It will leave. <laughs> For you were once in darkness, but now you are light and in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Here it is. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. If you have an obsession with death and, and just the symbols, that all the stuff that comes along with that, Repent. <laughs> Put it as plainly as I can. God loves life. He loves resurrection. But we should not be fascinated, obsessed with, try to communicate with people in that realm. Nothing good happens. Nothing good. Wait, do you know Wiccan priests who still celebrate Samhain? They love it when Christian kids partake in some way of their holy day, their Yom Kippur. <laughs> they love it. Don't do that. Have a backbone. Teach your kids character, courage. That will build them up for the world that is to come. Well, I'm gonna close in prayer. I didn't take any questions about this question or the last one, but um, we're gonna close in prayer and uh, we'll see you all tomorrow, 1 p.m., decorate the sukkah, set up your tent, do all that stuff. And then 6 p.m. we'll kick everything off.